Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to The Sunday Sermon. The Old Testament reading today is from Genesis 22, verses 1 through 14. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him, from heaven said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The New Testament reading is from John 1, verses 19 through 34. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. 
I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Jerry Ornelas, and it's a pleasure to see if you're a visitor today. I would love to meet you after service. Before we dive into God's Word, let's, let's go to God and ask Him for His help. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you steal our hearts? That is, Lord, would you quiet them and make it ready and willing to receive, even if it's a hard word, the word which you offer us, which you give us, O Lord. For, Lord, we we can stake our life on no other promises except the things in which you have promised us. So, Father, may you open our hearts. May you do something spectacular, even if it's quiet. Stir our hearts, lighten our affections, O Lord, convict us of sin, or point us to and have us rest in that everlasting hope which you offer us in the gospel. O Lord, we thank you. So now, Lord, may you bless us. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So the question before us, it's, you see it right there in the title. And it's a question that I want to keep at the forefront of our minds. It's a simple question. It may be too simple, but I want it to be simple for the the point of being focused. Who is Jesus? Who is he? Think about that question. Is it too familiar to you? Is it too simple of a question that that question no longer stirs your affection? It may be. I must confess, I must admit, that to ask that question, even as a a pastor who's gone to seminary, it seems too simple. Give me the hard stuff, right? But is it also not a spectacular question? Just think about what that question has done to you individually if you're a Christian. To ask that question and to have that question answered has been life-changing. Or think about missionaries. They've gone into dark regions of the world with that same question and offered them a profound answer. It has changed them. It has changed tribes and nations. That simple question. It's spectacular. Or this church, this church over 30 30 years ago was planted to answer that question for people. Who is Jesus? In 30 years, the few have grown to many, as many have have come to know who this Jesus is. Think about that. It's It's a familiar question, yes, but it is a spectacular question. But before it's spectacular and before it's become familiar, I must say this, it's also a very crucial question. Why? 
Why is it crucial that we must ask this simple question? To put it frankly, if the Bible's testimony about Jesus is true, then you and I have something that we can't afford not to deal with. So that means that what we have before us is a demanding question. It demands a clear and honest answer. It seems far too common, should I say, for the witnesses of the church, the witness of the church, to be ruined and to ruin that question. To preach one thing, but live out, live out another. When the church is narcissistic, abusive, spiritually, emotionally, if not physically. When the church and its leaders are manipulative, and the list goes on. When the church loses her witness, the land languishes. Now, there may be some of you in here with, at a crowd this size I can only guess. But if it's not you, it may be somebody that you know. That you wrestle with this question. It's hard for you to look at what the church has done, all the ill that the church has caused, maybe to you, to hear them say, believe in Jesus, and yet they do the very opposite. It's heartbreaking. You may know somebody like that. It may be you. When the church is pursuing prestige and power and to maintain the status quo, is the church then a reliable witness? So I have a true story. There was, there was a few years ago, I was, before I moved here to New Haven, I was living in Savannah, Georgia, working at this other company, and me and the guy I was working with, we were going to a client to get more business from him. So we went to him. We sat in his office. He had a big office. His desk was there. The seats were here. And there was this big book, bookshelf behind us. We sat down and we began talking. We Small talk started off with. And in, the middle of the, and in the middle of the small talk, he mentioned something about Jesus. So we were like, oh, we didn't expect him to be a Christian. This is cool. So we asked him, sir, are you a Christian? And he does this. points past us to the bookshelf. We look behind us. And he was pointing at his seminary degree. His seminary degree, he had many. And he pointed at them. And he started listing off all his credentials. But that wasn't a question. But that was his answer. Look what I've done. Is that a reliable witness? Is that what you want? When that question is asked, who is Jesus? And you get a list of credentials. You get pomp. You get pride. Is that a reliable witness? Is that somebody that you can say, he's believable. He or she, they're believable. Or does that look far too much like corporate America? Far too much like the rat race of life, climbing the ladder to success? Well, I think that's what we have before us this morning is John the gospel writer is offering us a reliable witness to who Jesus is. And once we know who this reliable witness is and that we can trust this person, we can, we can readily receive what he has to say about Jesus. So, John the Baptist is who we meet. 
And this is a humble man. And because he's a humble man, he's a trustworthy man. That's the point. He's a humble man, and, and he's a trustworthy man. So here's how the story goes. John the Baptist, you've heard of him. He was a famous preacher back in the day. Famous preacher in Jesus' day. And what he would do, he would go to the wilderness. He actually resided in the wilderness, and he would baptize people. And here was his, this, this is what his baptism meant. This is what his baptism was. His baptism was calling the nation of Israel, as well as others, to repentance. That is a big deal. It's a really, really big deal. Because John is saying that you, Israelites, you who think you've repented, you actually haven't. You actually haven't. And people were flocking to him. He was the Billy Graham of the day. So what do you, what do you think the, 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 the typical, should I say, the on-the-ground leaders of that day, what do you think they would do? Let's go investigate. So that's what happens. The Jewish leaders send priests and Levites to go investigate who this person is and why is he doing these things. When you read the other Gospels, you see that John was actually speaking to the Pharisees and to the leaders as well. So he was calling them out. It would be like a pastor walking in here and calling me and Craig and Jefferson to repent. So the Levites come. And they ask him a, a series of questions. They interrogate him. Now, they do this publicly. That's another big point. This is all done publicly. That means the crowds that are around, they see these other spiritual leaders and the priests and the Levites, those who are protectors of the law, guardians of the law, preachers of the law. And they begin questioning him publicly. And they ask him one question. It's assumed, are you the Christ? And John says, I'm not. He doubles down on it. He says, I'm certainly not. I confess, I'm not the Christ. Then they ask him, are you Elijah? And they, he says, no. Then, then they ask him, are you the prophet? Now, who are these three individuals, really quick? Well, we know who the Messiah is. There was a longing for this Messiah to come and reign in Israel. And John says, I'm not that. And then Elijah was to be the forerunner of this Messiah. He was come and preach repentance to the nation and bring everyone to the Messiah. And John says, I'm not him either. And then the prophet was mentioned back in Deuteronomy, and the Israelites would have known that. And this prophet was promised to be a new Moses to rise up amongst the people and to lead them into this new era. And John says, I'm not him either. So they scratch their heads and they say, well, John, we have to tell our leaders something. Who are you? What do you say about yourself? Now pause. Pause for a moment. What do you think John could have said? This is done publicly. Here's a point where he can defend himself. He can point to himself. Don't you see the crowds? Who do you, why do you ask who I am? He could say that. He could say, go talk to one of my followers. There's no defending of himself. That's, that's quite astonishing. And I've, I've been wrecking my mind over, over that. And I find it odd, or should I say, finding rather convicting. That here's a man 
at the height of his career, thousands of followers being questioned by other leaders publicly, basically being challenged. And then the opportunity is given, tell us about yourself. And all he desires to say is this, I am merely a voice. I am merely a voice. That's, that's quite spectacular. Now, pause for a second. In verse 24, we find out that the Pharisees have sent them. Now, when you read through the Gospels, John especially, but also Matthew and Mark and in Luke, the Pharisees were antagonistic. So the scene we have here is not just this Q&A between two parties. What you have here is an antagonistic scene, a scene in which it seems like they're trying to undermine John's ministry. And John says, no, you got it all wrong. You got it all wrong. You can't undermine my ministry because I am not the ministry. I'm not it. You've missed the entire point. My whole entire ministry is a point beyond myself. I'm neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. I'm none of these big figures that you look at. I'm not even a big name, a big personality. I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. That's humility, my friends. That's humility. Self-elevation was foreign to him. That's why he can respond, I'm, I'm merely a voice. But he was also humble, and his humility had an edge. This wasn't just self-debasement. Oh, woe is me, don't look at me. No. John knew who he was, and he knew his mission. And it did not reside in his personality. That's why he says, I'm merely a voice crying out in the wilderness. That's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the self-elevation that was foreign to him. But it's also, the edge is, his ministry was to make straight the path of the Lord. To make the Lord known. Something had gripped John. Something massive has gripped John. For a man to have such a large ministry, and yet to see himself only as one thing, and to see his ministry as, in a sense, not himself, is actually a bigger deal than you and I can realize. One of the things that I believe makes pastors fall is because the ministry gets to their head. They become too big for themselves. They are the ministry. Like that man that me and my friend were speaking to, when they ask who Jesus is, instead of pointing to Jesus, they point to their credentials. But we also see something else. And, and later we'll find out in John chapter 3, his, his, his life of humility was also one of deep joy. So this wasn't beating himself on the back, making sure he's not prideful. No, it was joy that was leaving him. Back over in John 3, 29 through 30, this is after Jesus had been baptized and disciples are leaving John and going to Jesus. And Jesus and his disciples are baptizing. And the, the, John's disciples are asking him, John, basically you're losing followers and they're doing what you're doing. What's, what's the big deal? You're, you're, you're losing here. We're losing steam. And, and John says, oh, you, again, you get it all wrong. You, you got it all wrong. 
the bride, the, the, the best man at the wedding knows that it's not his wedding. And he rejoices to see the groom come in and rejoice. And that's why he says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. That, 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 that in and of itself says something. That John's joy had a completion. And that when Jesus came was not the beginning of his joy, it was actually the fullness of it. Which says this, that John's entire ministry of humility was one led and fed by deep and abounding joy. To be a nobody, to work himself out of a job. Do you realize that's what John did? John spoke himself out of a career. Because one who was coming was greater than him. Oh, pastors, what does that say to you and I? What does that say to you and I? So what we have here is a very trustworthy witness. Why? Because he's humble. There's nothing in John that we can see from what we've been given in the text that would say he has other motives. This is a man who's dedicated his life to the whole task of making Jesus known. To telling you what God has told him to tell you and to tell you what he's seen. What if I told you that that might be, your, that might be one of your greatest witnesses? Is your humility? Is that, is, that, is that too far of a stretch to say? I don't think it is. But your witness can be ruined by your pride. That can be pride of avoiding. That can be pride of being domineering. But it's pride nonetheless, as the proverb says, before the downfall, pride comes first. You see, the glory of the Lord cannot but be revealed in a humble heart. That's why John says, I must decrease and he must increase. Back in John 3. If you want Christ in your heart to increase, you want Christ, the name of Christ, to be lifted up. It comes in a humble heart. And the highest throne which he, being the Lord, has upon this earth is in a humble heart. You may have heard of um, St. Francis of Assisi. Well, a short story. He became a celebrated figure, much like John, and the object of constant praise. And he is, he is said to have done this, to have assigned to a fellow monk the task of reminding him of his failures and of how little he deserved the praise he was doing. Imagine being that monk. Imagine being that monk. Well, a humble person is a trustworthy witness, and it's a person what's, it's a person worth listening to. So that's why we come now to the big question. If we have a trustworthy, a trustworthy witness, what does this witness have to say about Jesus? What does he have to say about Jesus? Well, notice in verse 
um, 28, this, uh, a, a brief, should I say, a, a brief ge geographical note that I think is important. Verse 28 says, And these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. That may seem insignificant, but it's a point. And one of the points John is trying to make is, if you want to know that this is true, you can go to Bethany and find out for yourself. It's a real place. It happened really. Go speak to those that live there. They saw it. They were there. But it's also something else. Isn't it all just so common and ordinary? This just happened here. All this baptism, all this declaration that one was to come, this, this, this great grand figure, happened right there in Bethany. It would be like somebody in Westfield or somebody in Howe Street or somebody um, on, on Elm Street hearing about CPC. And they go ask, where is, where is CPC? And they say, oh, it's 135 Whitney Avenue. They, yeah, go there. I've heard about them. They preach the gospel over there. And they, they come in here to hear it. And one of us is preaching. And one of you, or if not all of you, are ministering to them with your fellowship and love. And they hear the gospel and they get saved. Who would expect that? Who would expect that? It's just all so common. And I love that brief common note. It happened here, right here in this small little town in Bethany. Well, then notice also the, 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 the time stamp in verse 29. The next day. Now, in John's gospel, the next day has, a, has theological significance. It's a real day. It's a real 24-hour day has passed. But it's also meant to show, to, to mirror Genesis, that after each consecutive day in creation, something grand happened. So when, when one day ended, you knew the next day God was going to work. That's what John has here, these sequences of, of days. But again, notice the commonality of it, the ordinariness of it. It's just ordinary. John went back and went to sleep that night. So did the Pharisees. So did the, 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 the priests and Levites. They went back, had a common meal, had common conversation afterwards, and they woke up when the sun rose. Just common. And no one was expecting the Son of God to come. Just all so common. Now, I, I think that is a, a, a tremendous point to even make, that God is not below or beneath the ordinary. He's not below or beneath the ordinary. When would you, when should you expect Jesus, Jesus to show up? In the ordinariness of every day. I believe that's what we see here. Well, what does John, what does John have to say about this, this Jesus? Well, he says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What a tremendous statement. Here's Jesus unknown to the crowd, walking with the crowd to be baptized. Jesus, at this point, looks like John's disciple. He looks merely like John's disciple. And Jesus comes, and John looks, and he sees, behold, this is the Lamb of God. Now that phrase, let's, let's look at that phrase. The Lamb of God. Well, you've read it, we read it there in Genesis 22. 
This lamb image is the, is the image that we saw in Genesis 22. This sacrificial animal. And the Jews would have known this. You may have heard of it. The animal was to be, was to be placed in order and, and slaughtered for the sins of God's people. Later in, in, in the Bible, we see that not only was a lamb slaughtered there, but another lamb was symbolically had their sins laid the nation's sins laid on it, and then they sent that animal, that lamb, into the wilderness. And the nation would watch as that animal, with their sins on that animal, walk away far, far away into the wilderness until the animal is no longer seen. But I think the image of what we see in, in Genesis 22 is one far more striking. Because there, you don't just have an animal being offered. You do. But before you get to the animal, you have a father being willing to give up his son. And the text emphasizes Isaac because it says his only son, which is interesting because Isaac was not Abraham's only son. We heard it last week. that Jesus is the unique son of God. He's uniquely loved by his father. Isaac, likewise, was uniquely loved by his father. And Isaac there is being laid on the altar to be sacrificed. Now, whatever you have to think or say about that, what you must see is an image of love. And why? Because God provides a sacrifice. Instead of Isaac, it was a, it was a lamb. And what, what John here is saying in his gospel is that Jesus himself is that very lamb. To take, and here's the second part, to take away the sins of the world. Now let that image sit in you for a moment. To take away sin. What is sin to begin with? Can you answer that question in your own heart? What is sin? Well, sin is this. It's anything that separates you from God. And anything that separates you from God hurts you. It hurts you. When you lie, you may get away with it, but it stings. It affects your heart. The man or woman who wrestles with looking at horrible images on the internet, they may get away with it outwardly, but inwardly it affects them. It cripples them. Everything that cripples us can be traced back to sin. Everything. And John is here saying, this one person that you see walking here, this one person that I saw walking here, that person right there is the one that can take it all away. And he is going to take it all away. All of it. All of it. But... John has to say more. Okay, go ahead. Okay, he's the Lamb of God who takes away sin. But there's, there's, there, there's more qualitative phrases that are given. Well, there's, we know that this Jesus is also deeply loved by the Father. Again, to rehearse, we saw in chapter 1, verse 1, that this word who we discovered as Jesus is, was with God at the beginning. And that idea of with God is not just proximity. It's this idea of being face-to-face -face with the Father. Like you who hold children, 
look at your child. That's the image there. Beautiful affection. He's deeply loved. In verse 14, we see that Jesus, the son, was the father's only son. And in verse 18, that this Jesus was at the father's side. Again, think of your child even now at your side. That's the image that's given there. But also we see the image that the spirit itself descends on Jesus like a dove and it remains on him. And we see in other gospels that at this baptism, the father actually declares, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. What you're getting here, this image is an explosion of, of divine love. The father and the spirit both loving the son. It's being poured out upon the son, the singular individual. And we must ask a question, how? How? How can the son also be the slain lamb? How can this one who's deeply loved also be the one who's slain? That's the scandal of the gospel, my friends. That question itself is a scandal of the gospel. It's scandalous. At points, it's even hard to believe. But, but what John is saying here in these images and, and, and in this, this narrative is that love goes deeper than mere affection. Love goes as, deep, goes as deep as to solve your deepest sin, your deepest problem, not just by snapping his fingers and taking it away, but by taking it upon himself and carrying it away victoriously. Do you see that the son was given for the world? That the, the world's gift was the son, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's, that's striking because in, in earlier in John 1, we see that it was the world who would not receive him, wouldn't receive him, wouldn't accept him, didn't want him, didn't recognize him, and yet it was that world that Christ stepped into, and it was that world that was loved. You see, God could not have made a greater, sacrifice, a greater sacrifice. His love is astonishing precisely at this point. He put the world for a time before the sun. You see, the statement that we are so familiar with in John 3.16 that for God so loved the world, that statement, that God gave the world for, if, if the statement said God gave the world for the Son, if we would have switched up that verse, God gave the world for the Son, that would evoke no wonder. You would say, okay, a God gets the world. So does every other fairy tale. But the statement God gave his Son for the world that borders on the incredible. You can also say likewise that the son could not have suffered a greater loss. To have lost a father as the one who was slain was the greatest of all possible pains. So who is this Jesus? John answering him. He is the Lamb of God. He is the one 
to put it plainly, he is the one who came to save you. Whatever the media, whatever social media, whatever political rant any person goes on that tries to drive Jesus between its wedges, tries to fit Jesus into its, its squares, into its puzzle. Notice how focused the Bible is. He is the one who came to save. He is the one who came to save you. Just even think about the phrase son of God and how relatable that phrase is, son. He can lay his hand on you as man and say, I get what you're going through. I get what you're going through. He can touch your weakness because he himself endured your weakness. But also, he can touch the Godhead. He can touch the Godhead in, in all of its sufficiency. So that's what you have here. You have both God and man all wrapped up in this one passage, all, seeing, all being seen through this one person, Jesus Christ, who came to save. It's a spectacular message, and it's, it's spectacular because it's simple. It weeds off all the other noise. And points you and I to the true story of Jesus. That he came to save. Let me end by saying this. This short little story about Jesus. There was a Scottish preacher. His name is Rabbi Duncan. Back in the, I believe, 18th century. And Duncan, in a famous outburst in one of his classes, summarized... It for us. And he said, Do you know what Calvary was? That's the question. Do you know what Calvary was? By the way, you can say, Do you know what Jesus did? And with tears in his eyes, he went on to say, in answering the question, Calvary was damnation, and Jesus took it lovingly. For your sins, my friends. For your sins. That's who Jesus is. Let's pray. Most heavenly and gracious Father, we thank you, Lord, for giving us Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for giving us, giving us the one who loves our soul. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked this show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org.